to Storytime with Kurt. In each episode, I'd like you to sit back, relax, and just chill out while I read Tom Swift and His Airship by Victor Appleton. Previously on Chapter 2 of Tom Swift and His Airship. Well, Tom and Mr. Sharp got to working on the airship again when Ned Newton showed up and just see what was going on and reported, in short, that the Anson Morse gang appeared to be back in town. They are not in jail as expected. Chapter 3. Whitewashed. Let's tell your father, Tom, suggested Ned after a pause. He'll know what to do. No, I'd rather not, answered the young inventor quickly. Dad has had trouble enough with these fellows, and I don't want to worry him any more. Besides, he's working on a new invention. If I tell him about the Happy Harry gang, it'll take his attention from it. What invention is he planning now? I don't know, but it's something important by the way he keeps at it. He hardly spares time to help Mr. Sharp and me on the airship. No, we'll keep this news from Dad. Then I'll inform the bank officials, as you suggest. If the place was robbed, they might blame me if they found out I'd seen the men and failed to tell them. Well, that gang would only be too glad to have the blame fall on someone else. Tom little knew how near the truth he had come in his chance expression, or how soon he himself was to fall under suspicion in connection with the same band of bad men. I'll telephone to the president on my way home, decided Ned, and he can notify the watchman at the bank. But do you really expect to have your airship in, the sh in shape to fly soon? Oh yeah, as long as we have found our mistake about the gas, the rest will be easy. I think I'd like to take a trip in one myself, if it didn't go too high. I'll remember that, and when we have ours completed, promised his chum, and I'll take you for a spin. The boys talked for perhaps an hour longer, mostly about the airship, for it was the latest mechanical affair in which Tom was interested. And naturally, foremost in his thoughts. But then Ned went home first, however, and telephoning from Tom's house to the bank president about having seen the suspicious men. That official thanked his young employee and said he would take all necessary precautions. The telephone message was not sent until Mr. Swift was out of hearing, as Tom was determined that his father should have no unnecessary worry about the unscrupulous men. As it was, the news that the gang was out of jail had caused the aged inventor some alarm. It was not without some anxiety that Tom arose the next morning, fearing he would hear news that the bank had been broken into, but no such alarming report circulated in Shopton. In fact, having made some inquiries the day of Ned, he learned that no trace had been seen of the mysterious men. The police had been on the lookout, but they'd, they'd seen nothing of them. Maybe, after all, they weren't the same ones, suggested Ned when he paid Tom another visit the next night. Well, of course it's possible that they weren't, admitted the young inventor. I'd be very glad to think so. If they were, your encounter with them may have scared them off, and that would be a good thing. The next two weeks were busy ones for Tom and Mr. Sharp. Aided occasionally by Mr. Swift and with Garrett Jackson, the engineer, to lend a hand whenever needed, the aeronaut and the owner of the Speedy Arrow made considerable progress on their airship. "'What's your father so busy over?' asked Mr. Sharp one day when the new aluminum gas holder was about to be completed." I don't know, answered Tom, with a somewhat puzzled air. He doesn't seem to want to talk about it, even to me. He says it'll revolutionize travel along a certain line, but 
Whether he's working on an airship that will rival ours or a new automobile, I can't make out. He'll tell us in good time. But when do you think we'll finish the, well, I don't know even what, I don't even know what to call it. I mean, our airplane? Oh, in about a month now. That's so, though, we haven't even a name for it, but we'll christen it after it's completed. Now, if you'll tighten up some of those bolts, I'll get the gas-generating apparatus in readiness for another test. A short description of the new airship may not be out of place now. It was built after plans Mr. Sharp had shown to Tom and his father soon after the thrilling rescue of the aeronaut from the blazing balloon over Lake Carlopa. The general idea of the airship was that the familiar airplane was that of the familiar airplane, but in addition to the sustaining services of the airplane, there was an aluminum cigar-shaped tank holding a new and very powerful gas, which would serve to keep the ship afloat, even when not in motion. Two sets of planes, one above the other, were used, bringing the airship into the biplane class. There were also two large propellers, one in front of the other, and one in the front and the other in the rear, these were carefully made of different layers of wood, built up, as they're called, to make them stronger. They were 8 feet in diameter and driven by a 20-cylinder air-cooled motor whirled around at the rate of 1,500 revolutions a minute. When operated at full speed, the airship was capable of making 80 miles an hour against a moderate wind. But if the use of the peculiarly shaped planes and the gas container with the secret but powerful vapor in it were something new in airship construction, so was the car in which the operator and travelers were to live during a voyage. It was a complete living room, with the engine and the other apparatus, including that for generating the gas, in a separate compartment, and the whole was the combined work of Tom and Mr. Sharp. There were accommodations for five persons with sleeping berths, a small galley or kitchen where food could be prepared, and several easy chairs where travelers could rest in comfort while skimming along high in the air as fast as the fastest railroad train. If that doesn't date this book, I don't know what does. That's crazy. 80 miles an hour. You know, nothing really goes faster than that. There was room enough to carry stores for a voyage of a week or more, and enough gas could be manufactured aboard the ship, in addition to that taken in the aluminum case before starting, to sustain the ship for two weeks. The engine, steering apparatus, and the gas machine were within easy reach and control of the pilot, who was to be stationed in a small room in the bow of the ship. An electric stove served to warm the interior of the car and also provided means for cooking the food. The airship could be launched either by starting it along the ground on rubber-tired wheels, as is done in the case of the ordinary airplane, or it could be lifted by the gas, just as is done with a balloon. In short, there were many novel features about the ship. The gas test, which took place a few days later, showed that the young inventor and Mr. Sharp had made no mistake this time. No explosion followed, the needle valve controlling the powerful vapor perfectly. Well, remarked Mr. Sharp one afternoon, I think we should put the ship together next week, Tom, and have a trial flight. We shall need a few more aluminum bolts, though, and if you don't mind, you might jump on your motorcycle and run to Mansburg for them. Merton's machine shop ought to have some. Mansburg was the nearest large city to Shopton, and Merton was a machinist who frequently did work for Mr. Swift. All right, agreed Tom. I'll start now. How many will you need? Oh, couple dozen. Tom started off, wheeling his cycle from the shed where it was kept. 
As he passed the building where the big frame of the airship with the planes and aluminum bag had been assembled, he looked in. "'We'll soon be flying through the clouds on your back,' he remarked, speaking to the apparatus if it could understand. "'I guess we'll smash some records, too, if that engine works as well when it's installed as it does now.' Tom had purchased the bolts and was on his way back with them when, as he passed through one of the outlying streets of Mansburg, something went wrong with his motorcycle. He got off to adjust it, finding that it was only a trifling matter, which he soon put right when he was aware of a man standing, observing him. Without looking up at the man's face, the young inventor was unpleasantly aware of a sharp scrutiny. He could hardly explain it, but it seemed as if the man had evil intentions toward him, and it was not altogether unexpected on Tom's part when, looking up, he saw staring at him Anson Morse, the leader of the gang of men who had caused such trouble for him. "'Oh, it's you, is it?' asked Morse, an ugly scowl on his face. "'I thought I recognized you.' He moved nearer to Tom, who straightened up and stood leaning on his wheel. "'Yes, it's me,' admitted the lad. "'I've been looking for you,' went on Mr. Morse. "'I'm not done with you yet, nor your father either.' "'Aren't you?' asked Tom, trying to speak coolly, "'though his heart was beating rather faster than usual. "'Morse had spoken in a threatening manner, "'and as the youth looked up and down the street, "'he saw it was deserted. "'Nor were there any houses nearby. "'No, I'm not.' snapped the man. You got me and my friends in trouble. And you didn't get half of what you deserved, burst out Tom, indignant at the thought of what he and his father had suffered at the hands of the gang. You ought to be in jail now instead of out. And if I could see a policeman, I'd have you arrested for threatening me. That's against the law. <laughs> I suppose you think you know lots about the law, sneered Morse. Well, I'll tell you one thing. If you make any further trouble for me, I'll... I'll make all the trouble I can cried Tom, and he boldly faced the angry man. I'm not afraid of you. You better be. And Morse spoke in a vindictive manner. We'll get even with you yet, Tom Swift. In fact, I've got a good notion now to give you a good thrashing for what you've done. Before Tom was aware of the man's intention, Morse had stepped quickly into the street, where the lad stood beside his wheel and grasped him by the shoulder. He gave Tom a vicious shake. "'Take your hand off me!' cried Tom, who was hampered by having to hold up his heavy machine. "'I will when I've given you what I owe you,' retorted the scoundrel. "'I'm going to have the satisfaction now if I never—' At that instant, there came from down the street the sound of a rattling and bumping. Tom looked up quickly and saw approaching a rattle-trap of a wagon, drawn by a, by a big, loose-jointed mule— the large ears of which were flapping to and fro. The animal was advancing rapidly in response to blows and words from the driver, and before the uplifted fist of Morse could fall on Tom's head, the outfit was opposite them. "'Hold on there, mister. Hold on,' cried the man in the wagon. "'What are you doing to my friend, Mr. Swift?' "'None of your business,' snapped Morse. You drive on and let me manage this affair if you don't want any trouble. Who are you, anyhow? What? You don't know me? Asked the man, at whom Tom looked grateful, gratefully. I'm Eradicate Samson. 
And this is my mule, Boomerang. Whoa, Boomerang. I reckon you and I better hand in this here argument. Not unless you want trouble, cried Morse. I don't mind trouble, in the, not in the least, answered Eradicate cheerfully. Me and Boomerang has had lots of trouble. We're used to it. Nope, you better let go of my friend Mr. Swift if you don't want trouble yourself. Drive on and mind your business, cried Mr. Morse, now unreasoningly angry. This is my affair, and he gave Tom a shake. Our hero was not going to submit tamely, however. He had one hand free and raced to strike Morse, but the latter, letting go of his hold over the lad's shoulder, grasped with that hand the fist which the young inventor raised. Then with his other hand, the scoundrel was about to hit Tom. Break away from him, Mr. Swift, directed the man. You can fight him then. Well, I guess he'll have his own troubles doing that, sneered Morse. Not if I can help him, answered Eradicate promptly as he climbed off the seat into the body of his ramshackle vehicle. Don't you interfere with me, stormed the man. An instant later, Tom broke away from his tormentor and laid his motorcycle on the ground in order to have both hands free for the attack he felt would follow. Huh, you think you're going to escape, do you? cried Morse as he started towards Tom, his eyes blazing. I'll show you who you're dealing with. Yep, and I reckon I'll show you a suffering you're not looking for, suddenly cried Eradicate. With a quick motion, he picked up a pail of whitewash from his wagon and with sure aim emptied the contents of the bucket over Morse, who was rushing at Tom. The white fluid spread over the man from head to foot, enveloping him as in a white shroud, and the advance was suddenly checked. There, I reckon that's the quickest whitewashing job I've done in some time chuckled Eradicate as he grasped his long-handled brush and clambered down from the wagon, ready for a renewal of hostilities on the part of Morse. The best whitewashing job I've done in some time, yes, sir. End of Chapter 3 Thank you for joining us on Storytime with Kurt. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, simply go to anchor.fm slash storytimewithkurt or find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please don't forget to leave us a review and rate us if you like. Be sure to follow me on Twitter at VO by Kurt. If you have any suggestions for future podcasts, feel free to send an email to Kurt at StorytimeWithKurt.com. See you next time.